When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone. Today is a fun episode. We have Jennifer Lynn Barnes here to talk about The Final Gambit, the last book in the Inheritance Games trilogy. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here and so excited to talk about this book. I bet you're really excited to finally have the conclusion of the trilogy out amongst readers. I am because this series, more than any other series I've written, is such an intricate puzzle that Mm -hmm. I have been laying little pieces and little clues to certain things. So I've been holding on to these secrets for years. And so you won't even fully get books one and book two um, till you read book three. And then you kind of have to go back and see Mm -hmm. how I was telling you what was going to happen the whole time. So I'm so excited. I keep saying I have so many secrets and I'm so excited for those secrets to be out in the world. Yeah, I imagine. And that's absolutely wonderful that, and I'm going to ask you about the process because there really have been things peppered throughout the entire series, just like what that's like. But first, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about where the story picks up in the final gambit? Sure. So what's happened so far is uh, the premise of the Inheritance Games series in general is that this eccentric billionaire, Tobias Hawthorne, dies and leaves everything uh, to a teenage girl he's never met. And she has no idea why. Uh, And the only caveat is that to inherit, she has to move into his sprawling secret passage filled mansion and live alongside the family he's just disinherited including his four very attractive, charismatic, amazing grandsons on sort of in the beginning, one of them thinks she's a con woman. One of them thinks she's his grandfather's last puzzle. Uh, And the grandfather was this guy who was obsessed with puzzles and riddles and just intricate games that you had to solve. Uh, And so what's happened is across multiple books, Tobias Hawthorne has left behind these games for Avery and his grandsons to play to answer kind of the question of why did he do this? Why did he inherit his disinherit his entire family and leave everything to this total stranger? Um, and so this mystery has been building across multiple books. The final gambit starts And we're coming up on the one year period. So within the span of this book, this book takes place in like the last four to six weeks before Avery actually inherits, becomes the richest teenager on the planet, one of the richest people on the planet. Um, And so it's kind of it's the final stage of Tobias Hawthorne's game. It's the culmination of a lot of the mystery. There's still a lot of things they don't know. Um, There's this thing that is said earlier in the books that like um, Tobias Hawthorne 
didn't kill two birds with one stone. He always killed 12. So the question is like, what is the full scope of his grand plan? Uh, and as Avery is approaching that one year period, she's also sort of mentally preparing um, for becoming one of the richest and through that money, most powerful people in the world. I love that people are finally going to get to the end of the riddles, because that's something I found really fascinating in reading this series is that just when I thought we were solving one puzzle, there were like 10 more puzzles. And so I love how you sort of wove those throughout the entire series. And particularly through this book, there were so many <laughs> twists and things I just absolutely did not see coming. And I don't think that's a spoiler just to say that this book really kept me on my toes through the whole thing. And I'm so excited to have people read it, obviously, so I can discuss. <laughs> I was going to say, I didn't know that you'd read it because you're now one of the only people in the world to have Which currently read this I wasn't, book. I wasn't sure if I was allowed to say, but I did. I can cut this out if I'm not allowed to say, no, but um, I, <laughs> I did get a PDF from the publisher late last week and to cram it in. I was like, okay, I'm going to read. And so that I read it this weekend. <laughs> I, it was one of the coolest emails I've ever gotten in my life because I, you know, I had read the other two books and I was like, it's okay. I'll be in the dark because that's fun to talk about the book. Uh, and then I got the PDF and I was like, oh my gosh, well, I have to read it. So I pretty much dropped everything over the weekend and read it. <laughs> well, this is exciting because I've been waiting like so long for people to read so I can talk about it. I might have some spoilery questions to ask you at the end that we just won't record. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering if for this series, you always intended for it to be a trilogy, if it was sort of mapped out in those three parts. The answer to that is yes and no, because the realities of the publishing industry are such that I wrote each book not knowing if there would be a next one. So it was always really important to me to sort of be working two things at once. On the one level, I needed each book to be entirely satisfying in and of itself. I needed a game that could be played and that could be solved. Um, when I was writing book one, I knew when I revised it that I was going to get a book two. So I didn't know writing the first draft. So it got a new ending. So it got an ending that led more into book two. Um, once I knew for sure that I was going to get a book two, but all the pieces that led into book two were there all along either way. I wrote book two, not knowing if there was a book three. So I laid all of the pieces, but the pieces have to be these things that you maybe notice and you're like, hey, what about that? But that the book feel unfinished if it ends there. I've actually had a lot of people tell me like the Hawthorne legacy felt like an ending, like it felt like a duology. And I wanted that. I wanted each book to feel satisfying. But at the same time, I always had the plan for each book about what pieces of the puzzle I was laying. And even in book one, I was laying some pieces for book three, if there was a book three. So I always sort of had two plans. It's on the surface, it has to work if this is the last book. Uh, but I also need all that groundwork laid for the next book and what the next game is. So I always kind of knew the next piece, but it was always, if I get to write this next piece, this is what it's gonna be. But for now I have to make sure I'm writing the best, completed book I can. 
That's wonderful. I'm curious then, since you've sort of known throughout that you wanted to have, you know, those pieces sort of peppered throughout, should the story continue? Like, how long have you been working on this series? Like, when did you first get the idea? And then what's the process been like sort of writing and publishing? I know these books have come out pretty much one a year since September, 2020. So let's see. So I came up with the idea for this book in 2018, I think. Um, I was actually just doing some, I was brainstorming ideas for actually another book. And I had asked myself for that book, like, what are things that could happen that could make someone instantly famous overnight? And I kept coming up with all of these bad things. Um, like, oh, you're the only survivor of a plane wreck or you're caught up in a scandal or all these things. And then I was like, or a billionaire leaves you his money. And then I was like, oh, wait a second. That's too good. So I actually kind of stopped that other book and I was like, I'm just going to write entirely about this. And I had for years and years, for probably 10 years before that, I had Hawthorne House, which is the house in the book. It's this mansion um, that has all these secret passages and actually pieces of the game coded into different things built in the house. And I'd had that for years and years because right after I graduated college, um, my dad retired and he spent years and years designing and building his dream house where he'd like go over as they were building it. He worked with the architects. And I remember walking into the final house and thinking, I can feel my dad and every single molding, every single doorknob, like every, everything. Um, And he'd asked me what I wanted in the house. And I said, a secret passage. So he built me a secret passage. Um, There's a bookshelf that like you press a button and it disappears entirely into the wall. It's really cool. Um, And so then my writer brain started thinking, well, what if instead of one secret passage, it was dozens? And what if instead of this house, it was like a 40,000 square foot mansion? Um, and what if instead of just feeling that person's presence, what if you had a dead billionaire who'd actually left things built into the walls? So I, for years, was trying to find the right premise and characters for what I called my puzzle house book. And I pitched at least one, maybe two puzzle house books to my publisher where they were like, no, no. And then this one, I'm like, a billionaire leaves her in the her his fortune and she has to move into his puzzle house and so I finally got to write that book so that was in 2018 um and I've pretty much done one book a year since then with the books being finished about a year before they came out so I wrote inheritance games from 2018 to 2019 and it came out in 2020 I think I finished it around October or November of 2019 um which was fabulous timing because then like a month after I turned in the final version of the book this movie called Knives Out comes out and I went to see it and I was like oh dead you know dead millionaire in this case all this fighting over the inheritance games the neat house I was like so much of this feels like the inheritance games Uh, and that actually gave us the really neat ability to be like oh this is kind of like a YA knives out, um, which was just super lucky for me because I had done all the writing on book one um, before I knew of knives out's existence. And then since then, it's been about a year um, per book uh, since then. So you've been sitting on this for this story for a while. Yes. 
Okay. So I have been sitting on parts of this story for more than a decade. Yeah. Um, but the secrets, I would say I did not know all of the secrets when I wrote book one. Um, I got discovered a lot of them when I revised book one. So a lot of them came in in revision um, and some of them I planted and made up in book two. So the secrets I've been sitting on, I've been sitting on for between two and 10 years <laughs> for a long time. So this must feel very exciting and also maybe a little scary that it's finally coming to an end. I'm really excited to not have these secrets anymore. I'm excited yeah. for people to get to see the full picture and not just for the puzzles and riddles and games and the mystery element, um, but the full picture in terms of the characters and the relationships and just the arc um, of what's going on in the series. So it's very exciting. Um, it's a little scary because I've had the time of my life with this, right? And um, the final gambit, I will say for me, really does bring that closure to Avery's story, right? It mm-hmm. It is this arc and you get to see the completion mm-hmm. of that arc. Um, and that was important to me because I didn't want it to just be, you always think you have the ending, but then you don't. Like I wanted it to be across the three books, this really complete cohesive story but also a complete cohesive puzzle Mm -hmm. I am just one reader but I think you did that very successfully (laughs) (laughs) I was very happy with this series I actually saw a tiktok of somebody who had read the inheritance games and they described it as a perfect book and that was all the press I needed to immediately pick it up. And it like read it in a couple of days because you just are so captivated by all of the puzzles and the riddles peppered throughout this entire series. I'm curious if you know, I'm sure you do. If there are things, you know, about these characters that we don't like, how much are they real to you? Like, do you know their birth dates, their favorite colors? Like how fleshed out are they I do. There, there is a lot I know about them. I don't have some authors, you know, have a profile where they fill out details about characters and that's not really, um, so much how I work. I am a developmental psychologist by training. So I have a PhD in developmental psychology from Yale. Um, and I think that my psychology background really shows in the way I build characters. Um, because what I generally do and what I did, for example, with the Hawthorne brothers, who are those four grandsons of Tobias Hawthorne, is I start out kind of just auditioning tropes or character types. So I'll be like, okay, do I want three brothers or five brothers? Are they cousins? Are they brothers? I was like, okay, I want four brothers. And then I immediately start to go with like what trope or kind of character. So I'm like, I know I want one who's like sensation seeking, risk taking, everything's a game and nothing can hurt you if everything's a game. And that was Jameson. So I had like that core of his character and I knew I wanted one who was kind of obsessed with protecting his family and honor and duty and that always wore a suit. Uh, and that was Grayson. And I was, then I was left with uh, Xander and Nash and came up with the sort of just 
very basics of their character. Nash, I just wrote down motorcycle cowboy. <laughs> it, was, it was only two words. Um, and then Xander, um, I came to over a longer period of time, but his like log line ended up being like a human Rube Goldberg machine where his brain, he's just so brilliant, but he's really outside the box. Um, and so I have those sort of initial kernels of what I want. Uh, and then the developmental psychologist in me immediately asks, once I have just this trope, this two-dimensional trope for who I want them to be, I ask, how did they become that person? Which, you know, you hear people say nature versus nurture. It's really always nature and nurture, right? It's a combination of genetics and predispositions and the environment in which you grew up. And those things interact with each other. And the environment includes the other siblings you grew up with. And each kid is growing up in a slightly different environment. So when I'm making up characters, I'm constantly going between their past and their present. Um, because that's what lets me take the characters from like whatever the trope is, which can be very, very tropey or can be inspired by um, like, I want someone with Grace and I wanted someone who felt kind of like Elijah Michelson from the Vampire Diaries and the originals, because I really love that he always wore a suit and he was kind of obsessed with family. Yeah. Um, and so, so, so I have this idea of like, I want a character like this, or I want this trope, but then the way they become the own character, their own character and the way I flesh them out to be as three-dimensional as a real person is by figuring out how they became that person. And so for something like the inheritance games, I had some pieces of their childhood figured out. So I knew, okay, they had to have been raised in large part by their grandfather. I knew the grandfather had to be obsessed with puzzles and riddles and games. I knew they'd grown up in one of the richest families in the world, right? So I really had to think like, what was it actually like growing up Hawthorne? And how was that experience different depending on where you were in the birth order and what sort of natural personality characteristics you showed in early childhood and what was expected of you? Um, so then I discover more and more about their childhood. So what did those games look like? How did the old man treat them differently? What was the relationship with their mother like? How did each of them feel about the fact that they all have different fathers and none of them know who those fathers are? Um, and so I bounce back and every time I discover something new about their childhood, I trace that forward and say, well, how would that aspect have affected them. And then that affects how that trope is actually becoming a character in the present. Uh, so for me, character development is this process where I am continually toggling back and forth between childhood and the family environment and the family history uh, and the present. And actually often to do this, I end up doing that for their parent characters too because it can be like well to understand how this parent related to this child i kind of need to know what their relationship with their parents was like and so i end up developing this entire family system that really tells me how i how one family could have given me these four different ideas i have and everything i discover about that really lets me understand in the present things like their attachment style, how they view relationships, their coping mechanisms, um, the roles that they play now, the roles they're rebelling against. like um, And so all of these different questions. And if I know something like I knew Nash was kind of the nomad who left and never wanted the money, then the question becomes like, why doesn't Nash want the money? 
Um, why did he leave so often? Why does he still have such a strong relationship with his brothers if he kept leaving? And so any question I have, I trace it back to the answer. And then that answer tells me even more about the characters. Um, so the amount I know about all of them, not just the Hawthorne brothers, but um, pretty much every character in the book goes through this process um, so that I can kind of develop an understanding of them, not just as the character type I want to write, um, but as a person. And I think that shines through in the writing because all of the characters feel very real. And like, there are all those layers to them. You can really tell by their actions and the things that they say that they're, it's for a purpose. It's not just, you know, to fit that trope. I have a soft spot for Nash in the story. And I'm wondering if you have a, a Hawthorne brother that you're most partial to. So my answer is actually probably different as a writer versus like who like mm -hmm. uh, reading wise does it so I as a reader I'm also a Nash girl mm -hmm. I love his dynamic with both Libby and Elisa I love the 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 kind of like mild and understated but there's that undercurrent of you know you don't want to mess with them I've always loved characters who are like 20 somethings who take care of their younger siblings and Nash is very much in that role um but writing wise it's Sander I feel like uh, and I I could never choose between Jameson and Grayson people always ask me that I love them both very much too but the reason I like writing Xander so much is that um Xander's just so good. <laughs> like he's, he, he brings, he's a comic relief character, but he's also a character who just like really cares about people. Uh, he cares about Avery, you know, by book three, they're like best friends. Um, and Avery, you know, isn't ever a person who's had a lot of friends. She has one friend from growing up, Max. And then Xander is really the second closest friend she's ever had. Um, and it's because he is just one of those people who gets past barriers and her relationship with Xander is so much less fraught than her relationships with um, Jameson or Grayson. And so anytime Xander is going to be in a scene, the scene is easy to write. Um, Xander is the most fun to write. And I feel like as an author, you're often doing um, horrible things to your characters. So it's nice to also um, have characters who aren't a part of that, um, who are there. And Xander gets his own story in book three. And certainly he's had his own thing going on the whole time, uh, right? Because he he's just as complex as the other brothers. But at the same time, um, especially in a series like this where you're always wondering who you can trust. Um, I wanted a character for the readers and for Avery, um, even though he has secrets in book one and stuff going on and certainly secrets in book three. Uh, he's got his own story arc going through all three, um, but he's just the most fun to write because Xander is always Xander. He is. And he brings so much heart to the story. And I think it's really nice to see in book three that he so firmly planted himself as one of Avery's close friends that she has that support to go to throughout a time where obviously a lot of chaos is going on. I know that there's a lot of debate and I'm sure you get this question a lot 
the entire trilogy, there's that tension, um, an ongoing sort of love triangle with Jameson and Grayson and Avery. And I'm curious for you, if there was ever really a choice in who she ends up with, or if that's just a fun dynamic to write or what the motivation was there to have that sort of simmering tension throughout the entire trilogy. Yeah, I knew I wanted to do um, a love triangle because I love love triangles where the two love interests are brothers. Like, you know, give me your vampire diaries, your summer I turn pretty, your, you know, like I just, I love that trope. So I knew that that was something I wanted to do. Um, at the same time, when I'm writing the different books and when I'm writing those relationships, I'm very focused, not necessarily on the relationship arcs per se, but on how each character is arcing and how those arcs are intersecting. Um, so it's it's not for me a matter of, oh, so-and-so is her soulmate. That is who she has to be with. That is the only right answer. It's more, you've got these three people who are all at transitional times in their lives. Um, both Jameson and Grayson are dealing with a lot. They are both uh, changing. They've got some past trauma. They're also dealing with their childhood, which was wonderful in some ways, but not in others. And, you know, they had very different roles in that childhood and very different expectations. Um, and they, you know, had been in a love triangle before with this girl named Emily, um, who we find out in book one had died, right? So they, and they carry their grief with them in different ways. So Jameson and Grayson across the books, they are um, having their own character arcs that have to do with everything from their grief about Emily um, to the different pressures that their grandfather put on them, what they were raised to be, the roles they were raised to have, and so on. Um, and then you throw Avery in the mix, and Avery actually changes things a lot for both of them. So she is a part of the arc, that arc for both of them. She's the catalyst for that arc. Um, and, you know, I think on some level, that's why Tobias Hawthorne, on one level, brought Avery in, right? He meant for her to be that catalyst for them. And she was. And so what I spent a lot of time thinking about as I was writing um, the love triangle is like, okay, who is Jameson at the start and who is he becoming? And what role does Avery play in that becoming? And who is Grayson at the start and who is Grayson becoming? And what role does Avery play in that becoming? And then conversely, like who is Avery at the start and who is she a year later at the end when she inherits? Because she is going through a lot of changes and she has to. Um, some of those are emotional and relational changes. Some of those are about finally like finding this place and the people with whom she belongs, finding this family that she never really had. You know, she had a great mom. She's got a half sister who took her in when her mom died, who's wonderful, but she never had that like big family safe base home right and that is what she gets as improbable as it is from all four Hawthorne brothers um and this place that she's come you know she kind of it, it's a story of her relationships with them individually but it's also a story about becoming one of them about getting that sense of belonging about you know being an honorary Hawthorne um and so what is her arc and so that's what are her hang-ups at the beginning 
Um, and how does she need to change and how are circumstances going to force her to change to become what she needs to be, to be one of the most powerful women <laughs> and on the planet, one of the richest, the richest teenager on the planet, one of the most powerful people, you know, on the planet. So I was very much thinking about their arcs, um, about their emotional profiles for Jameson and Grayson, about how they both deal with grief. Um, for Avery, about like, you know, she's kind of got this avoidant attachment style where her dad and mom weren't together. Her dad was a total flake. Her mom never really had a romantic relationship with anyone else that she knew of. Um, and, you know, there are reasons for this in the book, but like you, she, she grew up with this idea that she didn't need romance. And that if you had romance, the person was going to let you down. So she was kind of closed off to that. Um, she was very goal-driven, goal-oriented, just wants to survive high school, get out, meet her goals. And she's closed off from people in general. Like she lets a few people in, but mainly she's very self-protective, right? So you throw her into this circumstance where suddenly there are people who get under those walls. And suddenly she has to choose if those walls are going to come down and who they're going to come down for. And once you start making decisions, um, those decisions affect you. And every experience she has with Jameson, every experience she has with Grayson, both of them are changing her. So it's just a question of how do those changes manifest and ultimately who is she? And based on what those changes are, who is she going to be with? I love that. And I think she goes through a lot in the trilogy. Her coming of age is obviously a lot to handle at such, you know, a fragile age. I can't imagine being a teenager and navigating all of those things while you're just trying to like pass your test to go to college. I'm curious if you have a favorite quality of Avery's. Um, she develops a lot in this book. Um, with some pretty wild obstacles. Um, but I'm wondering if there's something that you love about her that that really stands out. Um, I'd say there are kind of two traits. One, Avery's a survivor. Avery's gonna see what she needs to do to survive a given situation, and she's gonna do it. Um, she's been doing that her whole life. She just kind of adapts. And that means when you throw her into the Hawthorne world, she adapts really easily to playing the game. She gets into that mode. As you throw obstacle after obstacle about her, she is going to change and adapt um, to those obstacles. And she is going um, to survive and to thrive no matter what you throw at her. Uh, and the other side of that coin in this specific world you've thrown her into is that she is also very, very smart and very strategic. Um, so, you know, the books make a big deal out of the kind of mind that Tobias Hawthorne had and his grandsons all have different aspects of that mind. Like Xander is beyond brilliant. You know, Jameson knows exactly what risks to take. Grayson is perfect. You know, like you've got all of this stuff. Um, but Avery's mind is just as beautiful as theirs. And in some ways she is the one whose mind is maybe the most like Tobias Hawthorne. So her heart is very different from his, but her mind can do a lot of the things that his mind could do. Um, and that I think, you know, that is something that developed because as I was writing and revising the first book, 
I needed to figure out Avery's childhood and what was going on in the same way of basically how did she become this person who can go toe to toe with the Hawthorns when all the money and resources and everything in the world, they were raised to be extraordinary. They were forced to be extraordinary. Like there were expectations and opportunities and they've played these games their entire lives. And this girl waltzes in and suddenly she can solve some of these puzzles before they can. Um, and so I really had to kind of get to know Avery's mind and the way that works. Um, so that I could see how she would play when she was in the game. Now, there are a lot of characters in this book. I don't want to call them secondary, but outside of like Avery and the Hawthorne brothers and Tobias, do you have a favorite character of sort of the additional characters you have? You know, there's Oren, the head of security, the Laughlins. There's a lot of really wonderful characters peppered throughout. I'm wondering if you have a soft spot for any of them. I have a soft spot for a lot of them. Mm -hmm. um, I really do love Oren, who I think, you know, Avery has never had a dad. He's her head of security. He's her bodyguard. But I also think there's something kind of paternal there that she's never had before and that I always really enjoy writing. He's also an interesting character to write because he's there in almost every scene. Um, so I often have to be like, and then Oren stepped back or then Oren stepped out of the shadows. Like sometimes if they're in their house, he doesn't have to be right there with her, but if he's somewhere else, he's usually, um, there. So I love writing Oren, Elisa, who's her lawyer. I also love, love writing, um, in part because, um, something I love to do in my books is just show you a lot of different ways that, uh, smart and strong and powerful woman can look. And um, Elisa is very much so that um, for me, she's a little more Machiavellian um, than some of the others. And she kind of, I think, feels a little judged for being that and maybe specifically for being a woman um, who is Machiavellian in a way that we maybe wouldn't judge a man so harshly for being that way but at the same time she does very much care about the Hawthorne she cares about Avery she has this complicated history with Nash um, and she was kind of raised alongside the Hawthorns so she she has an emotional connection to all of this that um, gives some interesting layers uh, to write about that and then among the teen characters I really love writing Thea um, who is um, connected to the Hawthorne family because she was Emily's best friend. So the dead girlfriend's best friend. Um, and also her uncle is married to the Hawthorne's aunt. Um, so she has a vaguely family connection there. Um, and she's sometimes in a slightly antagonistic force without ever being a true antagonist. So she's just very much herself. And she's another one of those characters like Xander who makes writing scenes easy because Thea is kind of Thea. And of course she, uh, like a lot of the characters has her own arc going on here and her own complicated dramatic relationship arc going on. Um, that, uh, was a story that I was really kind of invested in. She's so fun. I loved scenes with her because you could always count on her to just say something a little snappy. Yeah. 
and always she, true to her she, character. She has the the one-liners. Like, I think one of my favorites from book three, this is barely a spoiler. She says something like, vulnerability clashes with my bitch aesthetic. And I was just like, that's such a Thea line. <laughs> like, oh, absolutely. There, She has the best little like one-line comments that just make the scene, I think, that much more fun and real. Because you do very much know people, like know people that will make those kinds of comments in situations. I'm wondering if... I saw on Twitter that you wrote um, for the last scene in, or one of the final scenes in the final gambit required the ball gown inspiration. If you're allowed to talk about what the ball gown looks like, I don't know if that's too spoilery, but oh I love that have, thread on I Twitter. So <laughs> many, I have an entire PowerPoint uh, now that is, which is what I use instead of Pinterest, where I've just copied over like the, a lot of the pictures that people sent me, because what happened was I needed to write what is the second ball gown scene, uh, ball gown and tuxedo scene in the book. And I was like, I need a ball gown to dress Avery in, but also I was dressing the other girls as well. Um, And so I asked on Twitter, I said, what's your all-time favorite like formal dress ball gown? I need a ball gown. And like dozens, maybe hundreds of people sent me these incredible images. And uh, so I have like a document full of different images and would pull different parts um, from the different dresses and had to decide um, color scheme. Um, I actually saved them. So some of the dresses kind of became like, okay, that one's a Thea dress or Rebecca's going to be in something a little bit like this. And then Avery's was patched together um, from about three different dresses that people sent me so I could make my own imaginary dress that was just incredible. Although now that you ask, I cannot for the life of me remember even what color I ended up with for that last dress. I think maybe it was was either green or blue, but I don't remember which of the two. I want to say green, but now I'm also And I just read the, I just read. There there were so many um, beautiful uh, dresses in my head that I was like, I'll save these other ones for another project or something else. Yeah. So I know we're talking about the final gambit. You've been working on this trilogy for years, but I'm curious if there's anything that you can talk about that you're working on now. I am actually sworn to incredible secrecy Mm -hmm. in what I am working on now. There are a few different projects. Um, One of the projects actually predated the final gambit, um, but we uh, swapped around when I was going to revise it. Um, I will say of the sort of three different projects that I'm working on um, in different stages right now, um, they're very much in the vein of inheritance games. If you like inheritance games, these will be right up your alley. And I, I want to say so badly what at least one of them is, um, but I cannot say what it is, except that I think readers are going to be really excited. We'll take that. I know you're sworn to secrecy, so it's really not fair that we ask you what you're <laughs> working on, but it's exciting to know that there are things coming. Um, as a reader, I'm excited to see what is going to come next. I have a couple of miscellaneous fun questions for you, if you don't mind. Um, 
I'm wondering if during your writing process, do you write in the same place all the time? Do you like to have, you know, the same beverages on hand and like set up or does that change? I tend to move around as I write throughout the day. So whenever I reach a point where I'm kind of tired of writing, I do a location change. Mostly that's in my house. So like right now I'm in uh, my office, which is actually like a desk in my guest room, <laughs> but I've got a little office um, nook where I write. I also, for Christmas, my brother got me this little lap desk that is a little metal thing that sits over your lap so you can write in bed. Um, and it holds it up. So I actually do write in bed um, a lot. Um, if I go out to write, the most common location for me to write in is the public library. Um, the public library when I where I live has, it's multiple floors tall and it has these walls of glass windows where you can just kind of look out over the town. So I like to just go up and curl up in a chair in front of the glass windows and write there. And so those are my most common writing places. I love that you mentioned the library. Um, Overdrive, who sponsors PBN, is a library vendor. So we love to hear when some of our favorite authors go use the library to write the books that yes, we read. I, I spent a lot of time um, for a lot of these books for Final Game, but the last round of revisions, especially, I did a lot of it at the library. We love that. So shout out to your local library for providing this, the setting for revisions for this wonderful book. Is there anything that you're reading or watching or, um, you know, just consuming right now in what I'm sure is limited free time <laughs> in between all of the projects? Um, or if there's anything that you just are really enjoying at the moment? There are, you know, ever since um, sort of the pandemic hit, I've been going through these dry spells where it's really hard to read or even watch anything. And then every once in a while, something breaks through and will get me back on it for a while. So those are always um, really precious and exciting. So um, my most recent breakthrough tile or breakthrough title was um, Queen of the, the Queen of the Tiles, um, which is a why a mystery set at like an international Scrabble competition, <laughs> which was just uh, a lot of fun. It has a lot of word play and word games. And so that one, I, I really liked. Um, the breakthrough YA title before that was called Within These Wicked Walls, which is kind of a supernatural, uh, even kind of scary supernatural retelling of Jane Eyre. Uh, that I really, really enjoyed. Um, <clears throat> and then I've also been reading a lot of adult rom-coms. Um, so uh, Special Affection for the Love Hypothesis, um, which is sort of a fake dating, vaguely Grey's Anatomy feeling um, rom-com set against the world of uh, academia and specifically a chemistry department. Uh, which my husband is a chemistry professor. So that one kind of hit, hit close to home where I'd be like, oh, they're talking about the mass spectrometer. <laughs> and they're like, ah, we talk about that too. I love that. I love uh, Allie Hazelwood as well. The Love Hypothesis is great. And her new book comes out soon, I think as well. I am very excited about that new one. I've got it on pre-order. 
very excited uh, for those books. I, I like her books. We're deviating here because, um, I am not in academics or science at all, obviously, but it feels approachable to kind of pick up some of the terms and learn a little bit about it in the context of a rom-com. They're just master classes in world building because yeah. she knows when you don't have to know what something is. So you can just give you just enough context to add that context to the world that doesn't over explain anything. Exactly. Love. It's so nice. I am curious if as we wrap up, is there anything that you want um, readers to take away from the final gambit or from the inheritance games trilogy? You know, I don't really think a lot about what I want readers to take away from something. And that's in part because um, my background, when I was a psychology professor, I spent almost a decade as a psychology professor. And my lab, which was a research lab, was focused on the psychology of stories, the psychology of fiction, the psychology of fandom and the imagination. Um, And so one thing that I believe to be very, very true is that no two people read the same book. Um, that everyone personalizes the book they read and they're going to get their own meaning out of it. They're going to import meaning into it. They're going to co-author along with the author Um, and reading, if you're a passionate, engaged reader is an act of creativity. It's not just you're there receiving what I have done. It is you are creating something in your mind that is special and unique and potentially meaningful to you. Um, So I aim to write books that are um, what philosopher Kendall Walton called an invitation to imagine, right? That leaves room for the reader in the text, that leaves room for their preferences and passions and identification and meaning. Um, So there isn't anything I want readers to walk away with because I think what any one reader walks away with is going to depend on who they are and where they're at when they read the book. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about books is that the reading experiences can be so individual and so different um, from one another and all equally valid. That's so true. So where can our listeners find you on social media or if you have a website? Sure. So I am at Jen Lynn Barnes on Twitter, one in in Jen, two ins in Lynn. I'm at author Jen Lynn Barnes on Instagram and www.jenniferlynnbarnes.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about The Final Gambit. This book is out on August 30th. So not too long now before it'll be in the hands of readers. Oh, thank you so much. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, 
and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.